Hi and welcome to this latest episode of Pod, the sectarianism, proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn and today I'm joined by Joanne Nucho. Joanne is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Pomona College. She's also the author of the absolutely fantastic Everyday Sectarianism in Urban Lebanon, Infrastructures, Public Services and Power, published by Princeton University Press in 2016. She's written extensively on themes of infrastructure and identity politics. She's done a lot of uh, filming work, and I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, We've had a number of people on the podcast recently talking about some of these questions pertaining to sectarianism, everyday sectarianism from from a range of different disciplinary backgrounds. So I'm really looking forward to to hearing some more thoughts from from an anthropologist. But to start with, could I ask what what prompted your your interest in in anthropology in Lebanon and uh, and and academia broadly? Um, so my background is actually kind of um, not in academia. I mean, sorry, not in anthropology until um, graduate school. Okay. So my undergraduate degree um, was actually in film. Um, I studied film and television production at New York University, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, one of the programs in the United States, which is really focused on um, broadly training people in film and television. Um, and at the time in kind of independent cinema. Um, and one of my mentors, George Stoney, um, was a documentary filmmaker um, who, you know, and also because of the atmosphere at NYU, the, the anthropology and the kind of film departments had a sort of relationship. Um, so I, I kind of knew about that crossover between anthropology and film or sort of like the ethnographic film making approach. Um, since those years, um, that I really um, was more steeped in, at, you know, documentary film and experimental film at the time. Um, I was always interested in Lebanon because um, both my parents were born in Lebanon. Um, my family is kind of interesting. Um, they're not ethnically Lebanese, I suppose you could say. Okay. Um, on my side, my family is Armenian, and my father's side is Palestinian. But they were both born in Lebanon, right? And so for me, um, Lebanon uh, was a really important, interesting place um, because for both sides of my family, it was the closest thing to home that there could be. You know, an anchor for really sure. diasporic families on both sides. Um, so I was always interested um, in Lebanon, interested in thinking about histories, um, and as I then sort of like started making more, um, you know, documentary related work, I just realized that for me, the ethnographic method, um, was the key component to an, any kind of approach that I was interested in, not just as a filmmaker, but also in terms of what then I didn't have the language for, but, you know, for research basically. Sure. Um, I had, uh, you know, just this real interest in Beirut. Um, it was, you know, talked about constantly in my house and growing up, and it felt very inaccessible um, being here, growing up during the war, and feeling like um, it was this place where I had a real origin story for my family, but, you know, I felt very separated from for many years, um, and also because the conflict sort of transformed, you know, this their stories about it, um, you know, from what it was 
after after the war and especially for them you know the stories about downtown and you know me seeing what happened to it after the war was very intriguing so there was a lot of energy for me towards you know thinking about Beirut sure um, later on i realized when i started realizing that the best way for me to make the work I wanted to make, both in terms of writing and filmmaking, was really to explore anthropology um, and ethnography specifically as a method. And that's when I, you know, I went back to graduate school. I first um, earned my master's in Islamic studies from UCLA, which was a interdisciplinary Middle East studies kind of program, and then um, earned my PhD from UC Irvine in anthropology. Um, and during those years, um, you know, started my officially my ethnographic field work in in Beirut. Um, and while I was there, I realized that, um, you know, space and one's identity in relation to space in Lebanon had a very particular meaning for many reasons. So, um, for example, you know, the place where you're registered to vote um, doesn't move with you, right? Like you. Yeah. Your family registration is really localized to a particular town or village, mm-hmm. and that the the role of your village or your town in your in your own identity and in your family story is so incredibly important. And um, I came to realize this more and more. You know, living in Beirut, and every Sunday, all my friends would go back to their you know, hometowns or villages, even if they never lived there, to go see family or stay in the family home. And, you know, Beirut had this kind of empty feeling every Sunday. And I realized for me and my family, um, you know, the the neighborhoods of, you know, what the Armenians call Hajin in East Beirut and Bush Hamoud were the closest thing that I personally had to a feeling of a hometown in Beirut. Okay. And I kind of went with that, right? I thought, yeah. like, what does it mean for this to feel like a hometown? And what is it? What is the? What are the spaces in which people feel um, tied to, in some way? Like, mm-hmm. where does that feeling of belonging come from? And what are the kind of ways in which that can be perpetuated or interrupted? Um, and and that really, to me, was always about a kind of spatialization of identity and belonging and rootedness. Um, and because, you know, both sides of my family were these kind of part of these sort of diasporic or displaced communities, um, I, I really felt very strongly that Bush Hamoud, which was where I focused most of my fieldwork, um, was a real important site for exploring um, rootedness amidst displacement in the history of Lebanon and in Beirut in particular because of its history of being a hub for Armenian refugees yeah. and later on um, displaced people from throughout Lebanon and from, you know, from, from the region and, you know, across the world because that line between economic migration and conflict migration is really quite blurry. And um, Bush Hamoud is a very dynamic place for thinking about that. So that's what kind of got me started. And once I realized that was the analytic, um, it was really straightforward and, and interesting for me to, to make Bush Hamoud the center of this, this kind of project. Fantastic. Thank you. That's, that's really, really interesting. Before going into, into some of those points, though, Joanne, can I ask, the, the drive to, to study filmmaking, where did that come from? I mean, you, you decided that you wanted to do undergraduate studies at, at NYU looking at filmmaking, but 
what were you hoping to do prior to knowing that that this focus on Lebanon and Beirut was was your calling, so to speak, intellectually anyway? What were you what were you wanting to do with with filmmaking? Well, I think um, I was drawn. I, I had been experimenting with video even in high school. I was lucky enough to go to a public school which had a um, video production class, which is incredibly rare these days. Um, you know, I grew up right outside of Los Angeles. Um, and though, uh, in a sense, you know, I was in the backyard, let's say, of, of the major, one of the major hubs of filmmaking in the world, my interest was never really in feature fiction filmmaking, but rather um, in documentary, in documentation of um oral history. Um, so like one of the projects I did in high school was interview, um, some of my grandmother's friends. Um, so, and, and I, you know, sort of recruited classmates to go with me and make these kind of interview projects with, um, people who had life stories to share. Um, so that was always kind of my orientation. I was, I was more now in retrospect, I realized like my interest was really oral history and documentary. Um, but I didn't really, I, I just absolutely loved what video could do. I enjoyed um, this idea of a form which was time-based and yet, um, you know, had this interesting relationship to realism that could be played with in different ways. Um, mm. And I, I wasn't really interested in journalism. Um, I, I knew that there was something about um, – this play between fiction and nonfiction and the visual and the image that I was kind of drawn to, although I wouldn't have described it that way as a teenager. Um, but I just absolutely loved what video could do. Um, and, and that's, so I went into wanting to study film, I think from, um, having an interest in telling in working, collaborating with people in telling, in, in, in telling stories really. Um, and in doing that in a collaborative way, which, you know, I think ethnography is, is really uh, a, a wonderful method through which to kind of do that. And especially the kind of ethnographic film um, and visual work that I did much later on. I think it really comes for me from those early experiments as a teenager, which um, set the course of, of what, what I was interested in, in making with people. Amazing that that power of storytelling and the medium of film is is absolutely fascinating and the the focus on on individual agency and in telling their stories done through a, a a completely different way to to what we traditionally see in academia or or, or print journalism at least is is really so very important. So Joanne, your your thesis and the beginning of your ethnographic work in in Beirut. Tell us a bit about that. What were you wanting to do? What what stories were you wanting to get at and, and why? So I was, you know, when I walked into Bush Hamoud the first time and then even at subsequent months and years of, of visiting the neighborhood and spending a lot of time there, I was so struck with... Um, the shift I felt when I crossed the Beirut River from Beirut into Bashamud, mm. all of this, you know, the signs in Armenian, of course, on the other side of, of Beirut, interestingly, that's the neighborhood where my grandmother grew up. And that's also a very Armenian neighborhood. But there's this sense of 
crossing the river and entering Bush Hamoud and feeling as though you're in a world that's being, um, that felt on the one hand, a, a part of growing out of the people who are living there and producing it and recalibrating it through everyday ways of relating and speaking Armenian and playing Armenian music and signs in Armenian. But I also got the sense that the political party, um, you know, and more and more so after, as I spent more time there, um, that there was also a deliberate, you know, this wasn't just happening at, in a vacuum. This was happening as a deliberate sort of project in the context of a state where um, your relationship to a political party um, is is calibrated through this kind of sectarian understanding of how representation works or who yeah, is sure. the legitimate representative of your quote-unquote group, right? And so I, want, I was interested in connecting the dots, really. Like, what is this, like, affect of being here and the feeling of belonging to place and how can we work to not separate that from these very practical ways that people um, make life happen and make community happen as an intentional thing and not something that is already there? Um, and the history of building Bushamud intentionally as a um, place to resettle Armenian refugees, um, which was a project during the French Mandate era, um, to the deliberate teaching of Western Armenian. Um, to a population that did not necessarily speak Western Armenian. And even, you know, interview I did recently, even as late as the 70s and 80s, there was still a very public campaign to try to get people to stop speaking Turkish and to use Western Armenian, which is really interesting. So um, it's that that kind of cultivation um, and, the, and the spatialization of it in this very small geographic area um, that feels so palpably... Um, like something that I could really feel and sense when walking into it. I was interested in elaborating that through this research okay. project and graphically. Was that the first time you were in Beirut? Was this first experience of of walking into this spatial area, uh, was it the first time that you were also in Beirut or was it just the first time you'd walked into here? So the first time I was in Beirut was back in 2002. I didn't grow up going back and forth from okay. there, although I had relatives there. Um, and, you know, to me, it was interesting because I started out, you know, that trip, the first time I went to Burj Hamoud, I actually started in the neighborhood where my grandmother lives and walked across that bridge. I actually did that walk with a relative of mine. And um, I really was struck like immediately by that feeling. And it stayed with me, even though I did not really decide to focus on Bush Hamoud until much later. Um, I mean, I wasn't a graduate student at that point. I was right, okay. not an anthropologist, right? So um, that that feeling and that memory of the, ex the affective experience of being there, and interestingly, the feeling of familiarity about it, um, having you know, thinking, how is it that this thing that I had experienced here as like a private space of my home or maybe certain spaces where, um, you know, certain Armenian spaces in Southern California, because I grew up here, Lebanese Armenian spaces, like, how is it that that feeling is a place in the world, right? And, and yeah. so I thought like, that was to me a really interesting moment. And I decided to build on that and think, if I'm feeling this in this space and it feels familiar to me and I'm not, you know, I grew up thousands of miles away, 
what is this that's being produced? And that was kind of my starting point. And that's why I think the film and drawing, map drawing stuff that I did ethnographically was also part of it because there's a way in which um, writing a, you know, a monograph, uh, an ethnographic book is one sort of project, but the work that film and video and drawing do is, is of a different kind. It's not really about creating arguments. Um, it's about this kind of space of thinking about affect outside of having to, um, you know, give it a point, right? Like Mm. it's, it's not about creating, you know, making something into an argument to mobilize, but rather about, um, spending time in a space and finding different ways of engaging with that, um, that are not linear. So So that's why I felt the need to kind of keep both going. Yeah. I mean, this is where I, I think it's absolutely fascinating going into anthropology and sociology, taking the line of inquiry away from the the hardcore political science and the 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 easily quantifiable to something that's far more subjective and and malleable, perhaps amorphous and and spatial, clearly spatial. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you went about trying to? to engage with this then, given that there isn't something tangible to, to measure per se? Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think for me starting out, um, finding, you know, talking, there were like a handful of people that worked in social service provision who were really instrumental in, um, giving me a home there. Um, and I felt, you know, the best way to go about this was really to, and the ethnographic method, you know, it's all about not just interviewing people with a set of questions, but kind of being in a place, um, and spending a lot of time and with people and seeing how things actually unfold over, over a long period of time, which are sometimes, not exactly the same as what you get when you ask someone what they do, right? And so yeah. checking checking those two things, not checking them to make sure they, you know, don't contradict or something, but rather to think about like how people narrate things versus how things seem to play out and the interesting um, relationship between those things um, is, is sometimes the thing you want to get out of ethnography, right? Um, so really to me, spending a lot of time in these places where people went to, um, you know, get different services or to interface with, um, you know, different, uh, they, they weren't exactly social workers, but they were kind of social assistance workers through these clinics and, and, um, social service provisioning spaces. Um, and, and lots of time also with informal, um, kind of, I'm calling them mutual aid networks, but they really are kind of something else, um, something in between. Um, Spending a lot of time in these spaces and talking to people and um, kind of forming these relationships over time was was key to the method for me. Um, And I I, I did not really see a way to um, go, you know, create a quantifiable or even 
segmented way of, of pulling out, well, how do, how exactly can we measure how people feel belonging? Right. Yeah, like that, exactly. That like something you couldn't measure in quite a way that it actually required me. And this is the interesting thing about ethnography is that the ethnographer themselves is, and their experience is part of the quote unquote data. If you want to use that word, right. Um, it is part of what you're trying to write about. So your experience over time, how people relate to you, how you relate to them, that all of this kind of also goes into the typical ethnographic monograph. Um, and that, that was an important thing to consider how, you know, the ways in which people related to me as an Armenian speaker, um, versus speaking Arabic or something else and, and how that gave me different kinds of access versus other spaces where I would have different access if I, I myself as a researcher identified differently or identified myself differently through the language that I spoke. Those things were all really critical and they, they only really could happen through an ethnographic approach. Like a structured survey wouldn't necessarily yield that, right? Of course, so yeah. It's fully on the side of the, the subjective and it's, and there's the things that, there's things that that kind of exploration of subjectivity can do that, um, the kind of structured qualitative methods can't do. Um, and yet there's, there's a lot in Lebanon, which is, um, I think, you know, one, one primary example, um, there has not been a census since 1932. So getting really basic kinds of demographic information about Bush Hamoud is difficult. Um, there, it, there's some social service groups and, and charities who have done their own kinds of quantitative surveys, but that data is not really that reliable, right? Yeah. Um, so it's not to say that that has no space in, in the social service, in the social science kind of way of talking about Lebanon, but rather that um, for me, I really focused on the ethnographic because it was best for answering the questions that I was most interested in, though I don't discount the importance of the other way of doing work, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course, totally. At, at this point, I feel compelled to to ask you about positionality, Joanne, given that that you have this background, given that you, you walked into Burj Hamoud with this this sense of, of, of connectedness, rootedness, if you will, given that you, you started approaching the, the project from that that position, how do you then engage with and reflect on your own positionality when you're engaging in the project as an ethnographer and as a as a scholar? Right. I, I think that's a really good question. And I think um, I think in general, uh, you know, even when I teach ethnographic methods classes to, to my students, I say that um, it's inescapable if you're doing ethnography that your own position in relation to the space that you're doing research in matters and is actually um, to be rigorously empirical. It matters a lot, right? Um, so I think for me, um, one of the key things that was part of the research process was being a, a native speaker of, of Western Armenian. Um, and, and being able to, for the most part, speak well enough to be read legibly in that way. Um, I think that the kinds of relationships that formed and the things that I was able to feel 
a part of, and also the, the ways in which I, my own, um, subjective relation to things was shaped by my ability to communicate well in Western Armenian. Um, I think that that to me was, was a key aspect of the research, um, that would have been quite different if I had, um, if I had, you know, not that, not that people in Bushamu don't speak Arme- don't speak Arabic, but, but there is a certain kind of access that language gives you that's different than, than if I had just spoken Arabic. Right. So I felt like for me, the, the language thing ended up being, um, the most, one of the most important factors in shaping the outcome of my research or the, the process of the research. Um, and in that sense, um, you know, my ability to not just speak it academically, but to know the dialect well enough to understand, you know, the few words of Turkish thrown in or um, the the specific Arabic words that Lebanese Armenian speakers who are from Beirut really use. I mean, I knew that dialect so well from my growing up with people from there that um, I think that relationship ended up mattering a lot. Um, and it changed what I was able to see and understand. Um, and I think that's the amazing thing about ethnography and the reason why, um, it's so important to have a diversity of perspectives in terms of ethnographic research, because, um, it really is not about official discourse. It is about experience and, um, subjectivity. And I think that that, that is something that requires um, different people of different positionalities doing ethnographic research to really learn about. Sure, I think that that's all so very important, and there's there's so much for for all of us doing scholarly work to to reflect on in this sense. So thank you for your your candor in that in that respect, Joanne. I I must ask you about the the word that is the second word of the title of your book, but it's a word that that has become incredibly um, loaded particularly with regard to the study of Lebanon, and that is sectarianism. Because we've done remarkably well to have been talking for for a while now without really explicitly touching on sectarianism, but rather talking about all the other factors that are shaping the organisation of life. So I wonder, can you say a little bit about, about what the book does in terms of contributing to, to understandings of, of sectarianism? Where does it fit into, into the ongoing debates about sect-based politics and the role of sectarian identities within Lebanon? I think it does a couple of things. And, and um, I, I think in that sense, it builds on the, the history of work on sectarianism, which really seeks to um, decouple theology or religious feeling from sectarian identity, because those things could go together or they could not. Right. Um, so I think that that's one kind of robust argument in anthropology and history, um, that, that I think is pretty well, um, yeah. Formulated at this point. Right. Um, but I think the other part, which is something that I'm elaborating right now in a chapter um, in an article I'm submitting to what will hopefully be an edited volume, um, is that there's a way in which um, the the decoupling of uh, sect- sectarian identity, let's say, from uh, material politics of, of distribution of things and urban planning, right? 
there's a way in which that can look something like an argument of saying that sectarian identity is false consciousness. Right, um, yeah. What I would like to do or say is not that this is like an inevitable thing that is just reproducing itself over and over and over again, but rather to think about, well, if we know that there is some relationship between, you know, sectarianism as a political project, which is spatial, which is about material politics, which is about political economy, right, um, then we can maybe think about it as something, you know, a project that is beyond just consciousness, right? Um, and and it it's actually needs to be approached in kind of a different way. Um, but this, it doesn't mean that it's only reducible to um, the distribution of goods and services, right? So it, it's this tricky balance of, you know, how do we keep and how do we understand that something can be both affective and material, right? That they're not like something you could decouple. And at the same time, um, how do we then say that while disavowing this idea that it is just about religion, right? That there is a kind of feeling of belonging that um, is not really reducible to piety or religion in every instance in every community. Sure. Um, and the case of the Armenians, I think, was important to elaborate because they are Lebanese. They've been in Lebanon for 100 years. Um, they're not some kind of different process. They, they elaborate as an Armenian community in the context of Lebanon, you know, in the sectarian political representative space of Lebanon. And so to think about them as one example of how that process unfolds affectively in terms of a kind of political economy, in terms of you know, a, a material politics and in terms of like a spatialization or geography, um, which is manipulated through urban planning, all of those things go into shaping this idea of belonging um, in a way that's not, you know, that, that changes over time. Um, so it, it's a complicated space to work in, but I, I decided to, um, I really did think that it was worth elaborating what sectarianism was or 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 is as a process because there is so much um, pressure on it as a term, um, defining it as something having to do only with consciousness. I really wanted it to be clear that it was it was not just something felt that it was a habit of everyday life that people needed to navigate um, in order just to get basic things done. And so changing changing minds is not really possible in that paradigm like what does it mean to change your mind when an entire system of you know organization of resources and urban spaces um has so much to do with you know who and what can access those things by through claims to belonging in a certain sectarian group so um i just wanted to kind of elaborate what that looked like ethnographically as a process um you know, with the hopes of maybe changing the conversation a little bit. And I think that it's really important what you're you're doing there, moving away from the the traditional debate about primordialist, instrumentalist, constructivist, which of course is important, but but there's far more to this or questions about sectarianism and the position of sect-based identities within political projects than their, their mobilization concerning the organization of life, the distribution of goods and services. And as you say, the, the reproduction of, of identities through 
everyday processes, through infrastructure, through the dissemination of goods, through the cultivation of, of, of networks. And I think it's so very important what you're trying to do in this book. And I think it's such a, an interesting read and an important read for anyone wanting to look at, at how sectarianism and sect-based identities operate on a day-to-day basis, not just at the sort of the macro level, but the day-to-day micro minutiae of how all of this plays out. Anyway, Joanne, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. The book is wonderful. I urge people to, to read it if they haven't already done so. I've learned a great deal and I've, as always, got a lot to think about moving forward. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening and until next time.